Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 104 being recorded on Wednesday, October 11th. 2017. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. In this week's episode, we're excited to feature a guest that we have literally been trying to get on the show for over a year uh, due to scheduling conflicts uh, between the three of us that has been hard to do. But today, the stars have finally aligned, and we are very excited to welcome to the Jason Scott Show Brian Colby, SVP of Digital Commerce at Cornerstone Brands. Welcome, Brian. Oh, thanks, guys. Real glad to be here. Yeah, and uh, where where are you located in the world today? I'm today in the home base of Cincinnati, Ohio. So, like you know, usually on the road, like you guys. But uh, to your point, stars aligned. And just to be clear, Brian, uh, it hasn't taken a year because you've been doing a lot of other shows, right? You've been saving yourself for us. Whatever makes you. Feel good. Go for it, Jason. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And uh, uh, excited to, uh, if I understand, you have a Tesla now. So we are in the Tesla owners, the electric vehicle club together uh, at this point. Yes. Hey, loving it. You know, can't say enough good things about it. I actually thought that was going to be your giveaway for your 100th show. I was hoping to be the guest (laughs) on that one. That it was like Teslas for each of your listeners. Yeah, we um, we tried that, and we ended up with some stickers that Jason uh, printed on his laser jet there. So uh, close, but we, we weren't quite able to get it to that level. It is a premium <laughs> laser jet, though. Yeah, it's premium. And it's, I think it has two colors, so it's pretty exciting. Exactly. I was going to say, yeah, self, self-driving laser jets. So. Yeah, I feel like uh, you guys have, have a lot in common. You both have the fancy cars, and you both spell your first names unconventionally. Yes, uh, it's one of those things that makes you very Googleable, which is a double-edged sword. I don't know if you find yeah. that, Brian. <laughs> I, I do. It's actually been fascinating. I've found, um, you know, I've met so far three other people that spell it my, you know, my way. You know, one guy at the local um, uh, movie theater that uh, selling a popcorn was amazed to see his name tag spelt the same way, and he's the one there actually is a Facebook group for, you know, Brian's that spell it B-R-Y-O-N. And this guy was the one that started it. (laughs) I don't know, Scott, if you ever meet, Scott, you ever meet anyone else? I have met a couple other people. Um, There's a lot of Scott Wingos with two T's. So uh, there's that. And then um, there's uh, the hero of a popular novel um, uh, is, uh, has got Scott with one T. uh, So that's interesting. But yeah, I run into like two or three, uh, you know, every five years or so. So, so kind of probably similar distribution to you. I did. I don't know if we have a Facebook group or not. I'm going to have to explore uh, creating that. Yeah, we last I checked, there were about five of us on it. So, but that was a couple of years ago. Is that super active? Like you guys just go talk about being named Brian? <laughs> <laughs> it's about as thrilling as you would expect. I'll leave it at that. Uh, and I feel like there's one other important piece of business we have to get out of the way before we we jump into Cornerstone. Uh, I think a big movie trailer came out this week. Scott, yeah, yeah. The, we, now some some people are keeping themselves spoiler free, so I, I'm not going to talk about it. But I where I draw the line is I try not to read rumor sites or anything like that. But I do watch the trailers, and this trailer was awesome. I'm very excited for the Last Jedi. Tickets are purchased, 7 p.m. showing, December 14th, where where the Wingo clan is locked and loaded for Last Jedi. That's awesome. Scott, do you you dress up, you and your family, for it? We don't. Uh, We usually save that for Halloween, and we're usually uh, a bunch of Star Wars characters for Halloween. But uh, we're not cosplayers, just never – not my scene, but uh, I'm more of a collector, toys, and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's been interesting The there was some controversy coming up to the trailer about whether the director was excited or not about it. But I feel like all the reviews of the trailer I've read, even from people that are not like huge Star Wars fans are like, it's one of the best made trailers of all times. So, 
Yeah, that's a misunderstanding. So it's Ryan Johnson, and he he was just kind of tweeting that if you want to stay spoiler-free, don't watch the trailer. And then oh. a lot of people misread that to say the trailer's not good or something. So I don't, I don't know. So <laughs> then he, later he was like in all caps, watch the trailer, people. It's great. I'm excited about the movie. So <laughs> Yeah, that was an odd thing yeah. to have have thought he said. So that may, I'm glad yeah. you were able to clarify for us. Awesome. Um. Well, with that, Brian, let's jump into the topic of the day. Um, we want to talk a little bit about about your business and what you're doing now. But uh, before we get to that, uh, it's always nice to hear about how you got there and what your your sort of uh, digital background is. Sure. Um, you know, just thinking through it, it's been amazing. And I've been involved, I guess, in e-commerce since about 1996, where, you know, it's part of a great team that we actually help build some of the initial pay-for-content sites for a number of publishers, including USA Today, Times Mirror, the Associated Press. This was where they had built, you know, the publisher that built websites, had no idea how to monetize it, and were looking to monetize some of their archives, their old content that people would come in and search for. So we had the company was called Infinotics, had, you know, had a technology we repurposed from our consumer um, a consumer product that was out there in the marketplace and turned around, handled the customer service, the billing, you know, all this was way back when in about 1996, 1997 for these customers. Uh, since then, you know, I've really held a number of different, you know, uh, hats in the space, but all focused on transactions, including uh, running a digital marketing consulting group, um, heading up a uh, you know, U.S. Uh, operations of an SMS commerce startup, which was fascinating. Just about this was in the year about 2000, 2001. So just slightly ahead of its time, being able to buy things uh, via SMS. Uh, was also a managing director at Fry Inc., another um, you know kind of legacy in the e-commerce space. A fantastic also group of e-commerce. We're all veterans right now that we had our own uh, digital e-commerce platform and we helped run some of the online businesses and technology for multiple uh, retailers across um, different categories, including Ann Taylor, Godiva, let's see, Canon, Craft, um, PC Richards, and many others. So, you know, after that for a while, then actually said, okay, looking to jump over to the um, pure retail side. See, you know, a strong desire to actually own the projects from start to finish. So, um, went and joined Mark Echo, which uh, was an apparel uh, company, and then uh, left. And I'm currently, as you said, at Cornerstone Brands. Awesome. And uh, the the fry bit always uh, brings a, a smile to my heart. Um, I think there's still a few fry sites living in the world, and it, it's obviously been defunct for quite a while now. Yep. Yeah. They got, you know, purchased by Micros and then of course Micros got purchased. So there still are some out there and it, it is, that's what you go to, you know, shop.org, you go to these other conferences. It's one of those amazing get togethers because you see people that, you know, work with way, you know, way back when um, Ed Fry just are now, you know, leads and heads at all tons of the different re- other retailers or other e-commerce companies out there. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Cornerstone. Uh, Cornerstone might not be a familiar name to some listeners because it's a it's a house of brands and then it has a, a familiar parent. So can you tell us a little bit about about uh, Cornerstone and who you are? Sure. Cornerstone wasn't even familiar to me when I joined that um, Corner. Cornerstone Brands, it's a billion-dollar-plus retailer. It's comprised, as you said, of a portfolio of different aspirational home and apparel brands that include Frontgate, Ballard Designs, Garnet Hill, Grandin Road, and Improvements. You know, over time, we've bought some different companies. We've divested different companies. Um, we have a strong catalog heritage. That's our background. Um, but now we're at a point where um, over 70% of our overall demand is transacted via digital channels. We've been opening up some new retail stores. So, you know, where as a whole, it's again, most people won't know Cornerstone, but the brand's very well thought of and brand's doing very well. Um, well our parent company is HSNI, 
which of course the other division that they own besides Cornerstone is HSN, which is more the legacy broadcast, um, you know, broadcast commerce company that has, of course has also evolved into a strong digital entity. Very cool. And I, uh, one of the things that always interests me about Cornerstone is the sort of uh, portfolio is is interestingly diverse, not so much in terms of uh, the offering to consumers, although that's diverse too. But um, I, like, I think some of the brands don't have stores, if I have it right, and so they're pure digital. Some of the brands have stores. Uh, some of the brands sell products that aren't super convenient to ship. Um, and so I, I sort of, you know, think about the whole portfolio and I go, man, there's a lot of unique, uh, uh, different business cases for each of the brands is, um, do I have that right? Or is it all pretty much the same thing? No, you're totally right on the mark with it. And it's to the point where that extended differentiation extends to the products or the, the product photography, how to, you know, the quality or of the paper that the catalogs are printed on that. People are usually amazed. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, I never even knew that Ballard Designs and Frontgate were, quote, related or part of the same. And so while, you know, part of the model is and we really we do have a hybrid model here. So we share a digital platform and other back end operations such as call center and supply chain areas where we could really get operational leverage. But then the majority of all the customer facing aspects such as creative product pricing, merchandising, that's all at the brand level. And the strategies for those are really formed at the brand level. So we may have, some may say stores are the best way for us to connect with our customers. Others may go with a different private label credit card. And all of that ensures that, you know, that we really are strong believers in keeping the unique DNA of each brand. So while we are portfolio we want to gain leverage everywhere. We really focus on not wanting to lose what makes each brand special and their connection to the customer. Because what we normally hear when people come in is saying, hey, you know what, we could save X amount by maybe consolidating, you know, all the photo shots, you know, all the models or the photo shots into one area. And it's really, you know, people have resisted over time. And, you know, it's actually been the right call is what we're learning. Cool. So, so in practice, walk us through how your piece works. So, uh, let's say you have front gate Ballard, et cetera. Um, do you guys kind of operate as an agency that supports what they're doing or do you, do you help them with strategy and they have their own groups? So, so let's just use something kind of practical that, that everyone does in e-commerce, like, like SEM, like Google AdWords. Do you, do you have a group that kind of like centralized does that for, for the various brands or do they do it themselves and you guys kind of enable strategy for them? It's really the latter. Each brand does have, right now just for this specific example, and it changes, of course, what you're talking about, but for something like um, SEM, each brand has their own marketing department, then their own people on the ground that are managing their SEM campaigns. But where the cross-brand leverage and where my team, myself and my team's role will come into play is one, ensure, helping to ensure that all the brands are using the best technology for, in for let's say, SEM bid management, as well as you know, making sure we're leveraging our relationships with our third-party partners. So, okay, it isn't just, you know, again, we're a billion-dollar-plus company, um, as a whole, but if it was each individual, they're going out there as a, you know, still larger, but smaller entities. So a lot of that is um, managed from a central location, as well as how, let's your, what you had mentioned, helping to form what maybe some of our strategies should be in the space. Like, okay, you know, as part of when, you know, the shift to increase mobile spend, helping to highlight the importance of that and digging into the data. So a lot of that is a partnership. So there are aspects of, you know, my team's role here that are shared services where, you know, requests make the brand saying, hey, this is a project we need to do for our business. But on the other hand, it could come from, a you know, my team and others at the corporate level to say, hey, this may be a good strategy for the entity as a whole. But it's rare where things are really pushed top down. It's a partnership model where the give and take on both sides. 
So my specific role is, again, heading up the digital commerce at the corporate level. So it impacts, you know, what the overall digital strategy should be, as well as the day-to-day operations and management of the digital platform and technology that is shared um, among the brands, as well as, you know, with the team here, driving learnings and leverage across the portfolio. But if it's touching that end user, like I said before, that's coming from the brand side. So, you know, and over time, this model has evolved and, you know, we've looked at all the different ways you could actually do this, that there, you know, some organizations that say, you know, everything should be centralized. Some say everything should be at the brands. We, again, it's a hybrid model is how we try and tend to operate. Some things we, my team will get more involved in. Other times it's where the brands are guiding it. Interesting. Uh, you had mentioned that uh, a lot of the the brands on the Cornerstone portfolio had started as catalogers, and I wanted to touch on that for a minute because I think that's super interesting. Um, uh, first of all, I was listening to the Walmart earnings report this week, and uh, Mark Glory mentioned something that I hadn't thought about before, but he's like, hey, we've all been shipping products to consumers' homes for 100-plus years. That's not really the, the new thing in... Uh, that the e-commerce brings to the party. Uh, what e-commerce really changed in the party is the the front-end merchandising of products that essentially, you know, the whole delivery thing is something retailers have been doing for a long time and that, you know, catalogers in particular had been doing. And the new thing we've all had to learn how to do is use digital to merchandise products. Um, and so, it, like, is that true at Cornerstone that you inherited good supply chains and, and uh, uh, facilities for shipping and that sort of thing because of your catalog heritage? Or were there like a lot of uh, um, sort of traditional methods that had to be, had to be dramatically changed to accommodate uh, your e-commerce growth? Um, with catalogers, one of the innate things that I think was, you know, when I took on the role that I quickly saw was an advantage was that direct marketing skill set because it's a very different business in terms of prospecting customers and reaching out to customers than it may be from either having brick and mortar stores or whether you're just starting as a pure play without that direct marketing background. So, you know, a lot of our operations, we've always been selling direct to customers and shipping to them. So from a supply chain, from a call center, that's always been in place. I mean, right now we have a small retail store footprint and that, you know, unlike a lot of other companies, that was kind of a, you know, later stage move that we moved, that we uh, went forward with. So, you know, and if some of this goes back to, you know, what you had, you know, your uh, man crush, Andy Dunn, um, there, Jason, in terms of, you know, you've quoted him a number of times that, a lot of these e-commerce pure plays, and I'm a big fan of, they eventually hit a wall because of fact, you know, doing effective customer acquisition at the right price, just, you know, you, you actually start to say, okay, we have to get other channels to go after customers. So they start to go into retail and everyone now is starting to go into catalogs. And the thing is catalogs work really well. You know, you need that direct marketing skill set, but the good part is once you actually have it, it worked in print, and now I'm really excited because I feel that a lot of digital channels are starting to catch up. I mean, you look at what Facebook is now offering, what Google's offering, you know, and I've gotten in a little trouble in the news recently just by how well you're able to target, you know, or if you're from Russia, that you could actually buy specific keywords now on it and do effective lookalike mo- lookalike modeling. But now with, um, you know, you could essentially take what we've been doing for catalogs for a while and go out there and do it digitally. And the other part with catalogs is that fascinates me is you think, okay, I'm assuming, uh, you know, you guys also, we go out there, we check our mailbox every day, but there really isn't too much in it now. And catalogs get a lot of the intention. So, you know, digital, you know, people have also asked, well, is digital going to kill catalogs, you know, the, you know, trademark catalog Mageddon and all that. But the goal is actually to do a smarter sends, like, okay, mail books a lot smarter and integrate it with digital. And that's what we're doing. So that's why all the back, you know, when you say a lot of the back office activities, 
you know, we of course need to, you know, and want to improve on it in terms of speed of delivery, in terms of customer interactions, but that's been there since day one. Uh, for sure. Uh, so first of all, tell me that wouldn't be a great selling book is the KGB's guide to Facebook marketing. <laughs> I feel like we should write that right now. Um, the, like, so is it true, like that you, you have catalogs that, like that are continuing to be good performers and that you've, you've sort of evolved them to, to fit better into the digital world, but they're still a significant acquisition channel for you? Yes, they are. You know, the, again, the goal is always whenever you, you know, if you're mailing a lot of catalogs, it's a numbers game where, you know, a high percentage of them are not going to generate sales. The ones that hit well generate, you know, a fair and, you know, ideally a lot of sales. So it's over time figuring out more and more how to reduce the number of mailings that you do or else reduce unproductive mailings. The goal then is to take some of those savings reinvested in digital and with digital actually, you know, have different contact points for the customer. So that is, you know, right now they, they real catalogs work well. They do. The challenge of course, is that they tend to be expensive. They tend to be some things that are out of your control, you know, over the long term. you have cost of paper, you have postage and all that. But it's, you know, while I'm, you know, at the start, while I was saying, you know, over 70% of our, transactions happen digitally, you know, cattle, you know, catalogs, a major marketing channel for us. And it's interesting um, because you see it going both ways. They're, they're, you know, famous traditional catalogers that have kind of gotten out of the catalog. So, uh, you know, I'm, I obviously think of like a Sears or uh, Victoria's Secret. Um, and I think even uh, kind of in your space, Creed and Barrel may have retired their catalog at one point. Um, but then at the same time, you see a lot of uh, companies, including digital native brands, adopting catalogs as a marketing channel. And so it, it, you almost sort of wonder if some of those legacy catalogers missed the boat by turning them off when, you know, maybe there was just a way to uh, to evolve them. I'd be And we started we started keeping track of it where, you know, within a 90 day period, exactly. You had some major companies such as Victoria's Secret say we're out of catalogs. Other companies saying we're reinv- you know, we're investing in them and doing more. So they're really, you know, normally you say, okay, there's a herd mentality one way. This is where it's, you know, there really isn't. People are, you know, finding their own path, but some are mailing more, some are mailing a lot less. Yep. And Scott, do I have it right? Uh, isn't Amazon even doing some catalogs in some categories? Yeah, yeah, I've seen them experiment. They usually do a holiday catalog now, which is kind of, you know. They're highlighting some offerings that are good gifts. Yep. Um, and Brian, I'd be curious. The So when you talk about sort of uh, digitally uh, infusing the catalogs, I think of sort of two things. Uh, obviously, you know, digital lets us know our audience a lot better and target our audience a lot better. So I could imagine using digital to, you know, have a higher hit rate and get more of those printed catalogs in the hands of the right people and fewer in the hands of the wrong people. Um, but I also would be curious about sort of print to digital interactions. Like are there, are there features you build into the print catalogs now to make it easier for someone to, to make the jump from the printed page to the, the product detail page or, or is that not important? No, it's definitely important. I mean, we've, you know, over the past couple of years, we've tried out a lot of things. You know, we've done some basic, you know, when, uh, you know, when the bar barcodes or whatnot, you know, when you had the codes in there that, okay, those were going to be the next step where you could actually just, of course, scan it and have the reader and instantly go to the website. We've also had different experiments. And this, some of these were great learnings where you could take your phone, hold it over the catalog, and actually the product reviews would spring up. You could see the product reviews, or if we had a couch, you know, catalogs of limited space. So let's say you showed a couch in two colors, you could hold your phone up to that page, and it would instantly um, scan and then bring up, hey, here are the other couches you could get. So we've done that, you know, and we've tried some other experiments, but I really think we've reached a point where you don't need to coach people saying, okay, you have this physical catalog then here's what you need to do to get online or here's what you need to do with your phone. People are at a point where they're doing it anyway. 
So in terms of actively trying to drive them online, we've kind of said, hey, you know what? We're not trying to drive consumer behavior. We're now riding that wave. Very cool. Um, so, so Brian, you're a listener of the show and, and you kind of have heard us talk a lot about uh, the Amazon impact out there. And one of the best ways to defend yourself from that is to make your own products. Uh, you haven't heard it yet, but the episode before this one was a deep dive on private label, which is a strategy that that everyone's really employing. A lot of people feel like even the Amazon Whole Foods uh, acquisition was driven by a desire to have a, a deeper private label offering in grocery. So you guys are in an interesting position, if I understand it correctly, because I think most of your brands, uh, you know, the, they, they're effectively the manufacturer and the brand, uh, the seller of the brand. Is, is that correct? That's correct. But the majority of what we sell are proprietary goods. Um, you know, we do feel it's a big differentiator. I personally believe this in that, you know, it, it gives us now more permission to generate brand authority and connect with our customers. So it also allows us to do a lot more with either, you know, product customization because it's all under our control. So it's something, you know, and that we've been firm believers in. And I personally believe it that, you know, the worst thing you could do is become commoditized. So us doing our proprietary product, and I'm looking forward to listening to your next, you know, the episode before this, when it comes out, but is, uh, one of the ways that, okay, if you're looking to compete against Amazon or any of, you know, any of the other, you know, larger big boys out there, I think it's key. Yeah. And then, um, so these brands have been around, uh, you know, since the catalog era has, have you guys done explicit things, uh, with digital to kind of, you know, accelerate that loop because some of the newer generations of brands like a Casper, a Bonobos, uh, Indochina, um, you know, one of the nice things about being born digital is you get that real kind of customer feedback very quickly because there's more of a put it out quick and get feedback. Whereas I can imagine in the catalog world, you know, let, let's say 15 years ago, it would be more of a, you know, come up with a product to do testing, put it in a catalog, and then it probably takes 12 to 18 months to get any feedback. Um, is that something that you guys have felt in your brands that, that you're, you're, you're able to close that loop faster and innovate faster? Yes. I mean, it's a great call out that, you know, part of the challenge always with catalogs is the lead time involved to actually get things in there. So one of the things, of course, is scaling back, okay, the num not the number, but the types of promotions you put in catalogs. Because you talk about being responsive to the market needs and business needs. It's a little tough if you're putting an offer in a book that, you know, may go out, okay, three months from now, that's going to be the offer doesn't mean it's not done. So that's one thing where you could, you know, we're gaining a more flexibility online as well as in the product reviews and in, you know, that just from product reviews, from product feedback from customers, even though it may be in the book, we're taking that and we're into, you know, we're integrating that to our core messaging on the site about the product. So, you know, we still have, again, that heritage where, okay, it's still going out there ahead of time, but we are, you know, Part of it is gaining learnings from what some of the digital natives are doing and, you know, expanding on it. Yeah, I could almost see it flipping where, uh, you know, I bet now you could probably, you know, let's say you have a catalog coming out next spring. You're probably planning that one. You could do a bunch of digital quick things to test that out now uh, and then, you know, maybe take the winners and put them in the catalog. Is that is that kind of inverted with with the you know evolution of e-commerce? It's definitely something that we're exploring. And yes, it is. I mean, that's where it's great where, okay, you could still, you could still have the print medium that has that lead time, but you're able to get feedback before it goes in there. And it's evolving some of the older models about how the catalogs get put together and, you know, what needs to be in them. It's really, I mean, the key trick to that and not really trick, it's the shift, you know, from merchandising as, we, as, a, as a whole. And I know that's come up, you know, in different episodes and, you know, the kind of merch, you know, the merchandising prints role that that's evolved now become much more data driven. And, you know, you use much more real time feedback and all that are aspects that we, you know, build into our books that get sent out. Interesting. And you had uh, mentioned that some of the products that you guys make are are customized or personalized for the individual consumer. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. We've been, we've been doing it for um, a number of years and we, ex you know, over the past couple of years, we've really been expanding it, you know, 
echoes the point earlier about, okay, if you're going to differentiate one, um, how to differentiate from Amazon, but then also how to fit the needs of the consumers. And the consumers really enjoy, you know, have a lot of trust in our brands and enjoy, and enjoy them, but they also like the feeling that, hey, I have the ability to make it my own. So, for example, at Ballard Designs, which has very strong ties to the um, designer community, um, we built in-house a configurator. And this configurator, you know, you used to be able to build it where you could have a chair and maybe pick the seat color. Now you build, you know, you could configure on some some uh, chairs up to 12 different configurations. You could say, I want the nail heads this color, the legs this color, you know, the chair front and back, the welts, the seat skirt, the kick um, kick pleat. You could have all of that customized to it. So one of the things we learned is, hey, you know, it. it People are, you know, fascinated by using this tool, and we're actually able to also expand the use of it in our stores. So at every Ballard store in their design services center, the configurator gets a lot of play and use. And, you know, this is kind of really taking it to the nth degree because, of course, you know, and one thing, by the way, you learn, at least I learned from this, is I can make some really ugly chairs. <laughs> so neither of you, I would... Either, you know, either volunteer to have me come in and do it. And we, the three of us should have a competition one of these days and a tool who, who can make the worst looking one. But, you know, we also, of course, take a step back and we do a lot of even just the basics of product monogramming across all of our, all of our brands. We have, you know, we do it all in-house. There are really strong um, personalization center within our DC. And we also then expand it to the stores that within some of the Ballard stores, now you could also in-store monogramming. So you could buy a tote there and then go and instantly get it monogrammed with what you want. And we were able to turn around like with the recent, um, of course, hurricane that, um, you know, the first that hit Houston, we went in there within 24 hours. I mean, the teams here did a fantastic job. We're able to create customized totes saying, okay, this is, you know, a tote for Texas program. Purchase the tote, X amount goes to helping the local areas that were impacted. And, you know, that was from a combination of having that monogram and personalization capabilities, as well as a team that's always thinking, okay, how can we take our products to the next level? That's very cool. I, we've talked several times on the show about that that personalization being um, one of the good ways to to combat Amazon in particular. Um, and you know, it's probably not a perfect moat forever, but but certainly, like you know, that uh, customizing the product before you ship it to a customer uh, negates a lot of the advantages that Amazon has with the the huge number of fulfillment centers that don't have personalization capabilities. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, customers, you know, you still want to get it there as quickly as possible. But if someone is designing that extent of a custom chair, at least this week, maybe it'll change in another two weeks. They're not expecting it to be delivered in two hours because they, they recognize what goes into it. And they're also, you know, there's different price flexibility you have with that. So, you know, and, and I'm sure it's going to shift over time. I was joking before that there will be, you know, heightened expectations of this. But that customization is a major strategy for us. Sure. In my experience, customer expectations rarely ever get lower. Or if they do, it's not for a good reason. Um, the, the, uh, the other great thing about personalized product, though, is you probably don't accept returns on that, right? Their return rate is probably zero. Exactly. I mean, there are, you know, there are always circumstances, but the, no matter what, you know, you hear this from others out there on those customized products, the return rate drops tremendously on it, whether you allow it or not. Sure. Uh, totally get that. And I mean, but I do feel like people sometimes underestimate what a big part of the economic equation returns are in most e-commerce businesses. So even when you just dramatically curtail returns, that that is a huge economic impact on on you know if and when a company can get get profitable in e-commerce. So I, I certainly like that that trend overall. Um, I wanted to uh, sort of flip the personalization question for a second, though. Um, with most people, when we talk about personalization, we're not so much talking about personalizing the actual products. We're talking about personalizing the user experience of shopping for the products. Um, and, uh, we, we talked a little bit about that, uh, when, in the, the catalog discussion, but where, where do you guys sit in the whole spectrum of personalization? Are you, 
um, doing some interesting things? Is it uh, sort of on your roadmap? You think it's worth um, yeah, it? We've had, yeah, no, <laughs> no. We've been actually doing doing personalization for a while, and you know we've we've been doing it. And and what always fascinates me about it is that if a company's doing it really correctly, a lot of times the individual doesn't, you know, it isn't where they don't realize it. It's just hard to tell personalization unless, you know, what I do in my spare time is you have, you know, five different browsers open, keep on hitting different categories on sites and doing different things and see if the sites evolve to um, what your behaviors are. But we, you know, again, we do it differently among some of the brands. But, you know, one of the brands, we have a very, you know, on the website, you go to the home site, excuse me, go to the home page, and after a couple of visits, it actually, the full page could get personalized. That we break it up into different sites broken up into different, you know, whatever you call it, widgets or different components where, and this is, you know, some of this is basic where if you're coming from a, you know, a colder weather climate, we're going to show you different products, but then that also could extend into what content you see. And ideally, if you're doing this right, what we're also shooting for is you want to extend that into, okay, then the kind of messages and personalization that people get on the back end if they're calling into the call center or if they're also, you know, with the um, outbound marketing materials that they get. So we've been doing a lot of that. I, you know, the way I usually say it is we've gotten a lot better at personalizing the individual, the experience, excuse me, at that point in time for that individual in one channel. Where we see the evolution of that is okay, then recognizing them on their mobile phone and doing the same. Or as I said, when they call to the call center, they should have that same experience. But part of it is, you know, the challenge with personalization, and I've spoken to a lot of others about it, is actually one, prioritizing what you want to do, but then also how to scale it. In that, you know, it does require more creative resources. So you have to make an investment in it. In it, and you know, it's you get it's rare you do personalization and something that you know your metrics just jump up and your demand jumps up. It's a lot of singles and doubles, so you need to do a lot of them and do you know and just hit a lot of the users the same, you know, in you know personalized ways. And there are companies out there that you know do a great job. Zoo really does a strong job with it, where you know. They, I forget the exact number, but how many, you know, personalized homepages or personalized emails get created every day. And I do feel that, again, is also the interaction with the end user. Customers are going to start, it's going to become table stakes. So com- companies are going to expect that personalization. It's just that I think it kind of got overhyped. You know, really hasn't lived up to its potential yet. But, you know, well, of course, we haven't spoken about it, you know, AI, machine learning, I think that's going to lead to really the next one of the next generations of what e-commerce is, and it will be around personalization. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, a, a basic premise is that that machine learning is the way you can per, you can you can scale personalization, particularly when you you potentially even get into AI doing content creation. Um, exactly, that's a true point. Yep. It it's interesting, like the because personalization is such a vague word, like there's such a broad spectrum, right? Like you could say, Hey, we did a personalization on our uh, site. And, and that could mean you set up a data lake and collected way more information about all your customers than you ever had before and produced, you know, thousands of iterative pieces of content and are giving everyone a bespoke experience. Or it could also say, you know, you added the words, welcome Brian to the homepage, right? Like, um, and so it's 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 hard when people talk about having done a project and what was the ROI. Like there's not it's it's not a binary thing. Like I didn't have ratings and reviews and now I do, or you know I I didn't have 360 degree product rotations and now I do. And you can you know turn that on and measure the effectiveness. Um, per, personalization is in my mind is a spectrum, um, and it, it it's therefore much harder to measure the the ROI of personalization overall. Although you can sometimes do it for individual tactics. Right, exactly. And those individual tactics are normally those singles and doubles. And, you know, I've led a number of roundtables with other retailers on personalization. And it's, you know, it always fascinated me because you'll read whether it's Forrester, or Gartner, you know, any of the, you know, anyone that's doing their annual summations, you know, fit for commerce about, hey, here are the top um, 
top areas that people want to uh, want to develop in the future or next year or where they're going to spend money. And personalization is usually up there. But then when you get them with the retailers, you know, on the ground, sit around the table and you ask the question, okay, on a scale of one to 10, where is your company, you know, on that, where you view, where on the roadmap of personalization, I've never had anyone say higher than a three. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just it's so, and you know, Jason, I'm sure you see that all the time when you're with clients that one, it's a definition, but there's, there's a lot of vision there, but it, it hasn't really taken flight yet. Yeah. And I guess I would also even say there there are people that have like achieved a meaningful amount of personalization and it, increasingly personalization just for personalization's sake doesn't automatically win. Right. And so the, the fact that you communicated uniquely with me in and of itself isn't compelling. It's if the communication with me made the communication more relevant to me, that it's compelling. Right. And, um, you, you know, sometimes, uh, the, the most relevant communication is exactly the same for a million consumers. And when it is that that's perfectly fine. Um, but the, the fact that like you sent out a million different emails, if, if those, if something that's different in those emails doesn't make them uh, resonate better with the audience, it's kind of a wasted effort. And we, you know, sometimes we see people doing personalization as sort of a, a checkbox exercise where they're, you know, they, they're hell bent on doing some personalization. So they do something and, you know, they, they can claim that it's more personalized, but they haven't necessarily, you know, solved a problem for their customer. Yep. And, and part of it is then carrying that personalization in an ongoing way. And that's why, you know, the person clicks through the email, goes to the landing page, and it could be personalized to them. But then when they're throughout the rest of the site, it may not be. And that's where the whole experience, you know, it's not there. And, you know, maybe I'm, you know, over-optimistic on it. I think we are going to get there. But, that again, that's going to be a next leap forward. Yeah. I'll tell you one that drives me nuts, and I'll I'll pick on a company that's probably generally well-known for personalization, but our, our friends at Adobe, right? So... So they, you know, they do personalized retargeting advertising, like like a lot of B two B companies, and and uh, you know, so there, I'm sure there's a marketing person there that would say, hey, we have a really effective personalized advertising campaign, um, and so I get personalized uh, ads on YouTube from Adobe, um, and on the one hand, that's pretty impressive, but on the other hand, most of those ads show up when my two year old son is watching a um, like some kind of cartoon video on YouTube. And you go, hey, you know what? They yes, they personalize that. That has something unique for me in it. But they completely miss the context. Like, why are they buying an ad trying to sell me Adobe Marketing Cloud in the middle of content designed for two year olds? And that's but that's the truth. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm I not making fun that. of it because that was you know an easy easy solve. But I just I feel like that's the state we're in right now. Is it's still early days in getting all this stuff right? Uh, I did want to go back. I, I neglected one question when we were talking about the personalization of products, and you mentioned the the, the configurator that you use at Boward for the chairs. Did you have to build something unique uh, that that you guys use, or were you able to buy some sort of off the shelf uh, configuration package and then adapt it to your your products? So we we looked at a number on a number of either off the shelf products or working with a third party to build it. And I've done some of this again earlier in my career at Fry, you know, working with Circuit City and others built configurators. And one of the learnings from back then was the toughest part about building a configurator is the ongoing support as products change or as you know as your systems change, how you actually keep keep it running. So based on that, when we looked, you know, for the Ballard Designs one, we decided to actually build it ourselves because we wanted specific ties into our backend systems. We wanted a specific UI for it and for ongoing maintenance. So no, we, that was, you know, some things we'll use third parties for, but that was a team here that built it. Gotcha. Very impressive. Cool. One of, uh, I saw one of your execs speak at a conference and they were talking about, um, kind of 
you know, omni-channel and, and store experiences and the digital native brands, as you mentioned, are, are kind of catching on to this. And the latest kind of catchphrase is O plus O, which is online and offline. And I feel like you guys have had stores for a while, but I, uh, if I recall, you're doing a lot more of these kind of pop-up experiences. Um, tell us tell us kind of a little bit of history of, of the stores uh, amongst your brands and then some of the things that you're experimenting with around other o- online and offline interactions. Sure. Yeah, we've had, um, you know, from a store perspective, we've had a some re- a retail footprint, a small one, though, for a number of years. It actually, you know, predated my to the company. But the majority of them, in all honesty, were not good customer experiences. That some of them were outlet stores, which are fine, but they were they looked like outlet stores with, you know, products dumped all over the place. And again, they didn't really capture the essence of the brand. And it wasn't any one person's doing. It just was, you know, a part of the business that most people did not pay attention to. So a couple years ago, though, when from doing surveys and talking to our customers, we start to experiment and Ballard Designs was one of the first. This wasn't a pop-up, but with a new design, you know, a new store concept, really focused on design services. And, you know, one of the stories that, you know, which is accurate that the president of Ballard Designs frequently tells is that when we would go and, you know, we met with a lot of the people that design stores and they were all, all like, oh, the design services, that should be in the back corner of the store. That's, you know, where it goes. They're out of the line of sight. And, you know, the people at Ballard, this is, and this is why, again, that they're, you know, the individual brand were the people that helped design the store because they're closest to the customer and they understood it. It wasn't necessarily a corporate initiative. So no, the design services are what's important. That's, again, what makes us different. So they put that in the middle of the store. And, you know, since then, and what we also want to look at is, okay, when we open the store, what happens to the business overall? And we're seeing in the surrounding, you know, MSAs, our digital business also takes a lift takes a bump up. So, you know, Ballard, they've opened some stores in um, Roosevelt Field Mall in New York, Cana Prussia Mall, Tyson's Corner. And we brought on, you know, some additional uh, people inside to actually run the retail business and help with store operations and have been, you know, kicking butt and doing a great job. Now, uh, and then Frontgate also, by the way, was, we're now testing it with Frontgate, just opened the store out in Plano, Texas, um, a brand new design concept. Because, from a cataloger, you know, our point of view, whether you're a direct business, a cataloger, to grow, you know, furniture businesses at the scale that they've grown from Frontgate, Ballard, Improvements, Grand and Road, without allowing people or giving people the opportunity to feel and touch it. And we've done AR experiments and all that where it really isn't the same. It's good of being there in the store that this seemed like the next, and it was the next logical step. For Garnet Hill, what you were referring to is they did a great mobile boutique that they kind of retrofitted a container and drove it around in South Street Seaport, New York, as well as about Exeter, New Hampshire, and opened up the container. And it was a mini Garnet Hill store that would help educate people to what the brand was. You know, we so in the container that we had over 5,000 visitors to it, we had local celebrity chefs, we had book signings. So again, that's an experiment. Doesn't mean we're necessarily going to do it again, but we also have tried different, you know, Frontgate had different pop-up stores that they did. So a lot of this is learning. And we learn that customers definitely, you know, one, it's amazing when you're at these store openings that people that have, you know, only bought from, let's say, online, when they actually are in a store, it is just a love fest. The opening, you know, you invite some of the top customers and you have people discovering the store and just speaking to them about what the brand means to them and seeing its physical location is thrilling. Very cool. And at the top of the show, when you said you were traveling a lot, is that because you're driving that that container around? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that's my uh, that's my side show. Other I duties as assigned. My responsibilities. Exactly. <laughs> Special projects and all that. So impressive. Yeah. Impressive. Instead, uh, call it your side hustle. That's your side hustle. <laughs> uh, and I know who to clean. Call, of course, Scott, if I need it cleaned. So yes. then we're all set. Yep, uh, that's, right. that's a great time to mention not only if you need it cleaned, but if you need its oil changed. Mobile One. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we uh, we announced a partnership with Exxon today, so pretty excited about that. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, yeah. 
Scott doesn't feel like I follow him, but I totally do. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, in line between stalk and follow there, Jason. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, luckily he has a several state buffer to keep him keep him safe. Um, hey, Brian, like I know in your role you get pitched a lot from a bunch of different vendors and you got all these different brands that want to try different things and bif- different business users in each of those things. And, and like, you know, uh, Scott and I, you, you're at a lot of the industry events hearing about the new things. Um, help us, help us curate a little bit. Like, are there any sort of, um, new trends or up and coming, uh, practices or technologies that, that you're particularly interested in or excited about? Um, I've been seeing, a lot more where companies, again, and, you know, without naming some of the specific ones that have traditionally come to the table and said, hey, you know, we could help you with email um, trip campaigns or trigger campaigns, or that even we could help you with personalization. They're becoming a lot more data-driven, which excites me. And they're, you know, using data in, you know, new and I would say in different ways, but really trying to maximize it. And they're also focused now on how they're going to tie into your full ecosystem, which goes back then. And that's been the biggest challenge. You know, that if, if we had one company that did personalization in email and one company that may have done personalization on the site and they're not talking to each other, it's a fragmented experience. So there's a lot more of that overall. I mean, for the overall where, I see in the future and where companies are doing a lot more is, as I said it before, AI, you know, on one hand, I hate it because, you know, you said we go to all these different industry events and now, you know, you, I, it's rare I get any pitch that doesn't mention some kind of machine learning where, but I do think it's going to go over that height curve sometime soon, but how we intelligently, you know, recognize and uh, promote and personalize experiences, whether it's, promotions, um, some interactions, inventory, pricing. A lot of the companies that are doing that now, and it's still in its beginning stages, but in the AI space, I'm, you know, very interested in, and, you know, just looking around at, okay, you know, for Cornerstone and for our brands, what is the right way to do that? Um, admittedly, I don't think we're at a point yet where I would recommend going full all in on that that, you know, would want to definitely test it first. And that's what I also love about the portfolio model here is that, you know, what we, our normal standard operating procedure is doing a new initiative or finding a new company, um, like you were mentioning earlier, it's try it on one brand, prove it out, and then actually roll it out to others. So, I mean, the other aspects are augmented reality. We really haven't spoken a lot about, but, you know, I mentioned it earlier that's not the same as being in the physical store, but, you know, we launched a, a trial with that, oh God, about a year ago now. And the technology finally has reached a point where, you know, beyond just Apple adopting it, it's where you don't need markers anymore. I mean, you've got to make this as easy as possible and just holding up the phone and it working is great. So um, that's one area, I guess the last one, and this, you know, you could have a whole other our discussion on, and this is one I admittedly don't have the solve for, I'm not even going to pretend to myself that I do, is just, I look at it like, okay, five years out or even 10 years out, that so much, and you've spoken about this somewhat, about what you meet, you know, that there's going to be disintermediation in that things are going to be come between our brand message and the customer. And we're going to lose some control of that contact. I mean, we're going to lose it to you know, voice-based services such as, you know, Amazon and Alexa, Google, Facebook. And, you know, you had also, I know, mentioned on an earlier podcast about, you know, with Scott Galloway talking about the four that are going to control it. It's going to have a fundamental impact on brands and companies that are, I think, are going to start to, you know, you know, partners or vendors as they start to learn to how to solve and address those, those I'm going to be really interested in. Yeah, that that certainly is a a big disruption. Uh, I, I'd be slightly curious. So, so we've done a, a AR VR deep dive, and I, you know, um, at, at a high level, like I think we feel like uh, VR is super interesting in the entertainment industry and the gaming industry, but it's certainly overhyped for e-commerce. Um, that you know, AR has some some really interesting in-store applications and in-home applications, but almost 
every vendor in the AIR VR space for commerce, the demo use case that they're demoing is your products, right? Like it's it's those those sort of home products and decor products and and you know products that are customized and require some visualization. Um, like, does it feel like even in your space, it, it's sounding like you're saying it's maybe even still a little early and we're, and we're just starting to get to the point where it might truly be viable. Is that? Well, I think that, I think the technology, and I mean, you know, the technology is, to be honest, is there. You know, when two years ago where I would, you know, be talking to companies that would provide AR services and they're like, oh, it's easy to use. The customer just has to go to the website and then print page, tape that page to the wall, aim the phone at that page, and then they'll be able to see it. <laughs> so we've got them. And I'm like, you talk about friction. I'm like, that's, we've, we've you know, eliminated the scotch tape from the process now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so exactly. So now, and that's what it was. You have to have a marker to see depth and size, you know, and when we went out, we, you know, partnered with a company and launched it. And it was just really a side note. It was really fascinating to me because we would test it out with users, you know, we'd go into our stores and show it to them. And what really frustrated people is they kept on wanting to take their fingers, you know, and do the pinch move on the product because they're like, Hey, I'm trying to get it to fit in this space and it won't fit. So I want to grow it and shrink it. But the whole notion, you can't shrink, you know, it's yeah. sized on purpose to see if it could fit in. So, you know, you would try and manipulate it, which just didn't work, but it, it, you know, it gets, we found, and you know, what others are finding, I think you get a lot of, you know, customer interaction with it. But, you know, and I do, we did actually see that more customers, you know, would help conversion rate, but, you know, there's a lot more testing to be done because, okay, I don't know those customers were going to convert anyway, because they were highly engaged. So I think that it's definitely there and you see all the way, you know, every, really every home goods company now is coming out with it that, um, you know, and even, I mean, House did it, you know, which I think is great because that is multi- again, multi-products in it. I, I think that, you know, and I agree that VR is going to be, you know, loves the Oculus Rift we have here and everything. It's all great. But for e-commerce, the applications still are hard to use, the ones that have actually experimented it. So VR a little while down the road, but AR is going to be here, I think, sooner than people think. Yeah, and uh, one thing that has changed since the deep dive is both Apple and um, Google have released these very robust... AR APIs in their operating system. And so it's a good news, bad news thing. It actually makes it a lot easier to develop AR applications and they're much cooler because the programmer doesn't have to do all the the heavy lifting. They just have to define their products and stuff like that. Um, So I feel like that's going to be a huge enabler for AR. The downside is from the time that Apple and Google like release this stuff in their newest technology, it still takes a long time before... Uh, it's in every consumer's hands, right? So you're, you know, Apple gets most people to upgrade the operating system, but it only works on the the phones that are one year old or, or newer. And Google, like nobody ever upgrades the operating system, and so they're they're not getting the Google AR kit until they replace their phone. So it it feels like we still might be a an upgrade cycle or two away from from those those kits being broadly deployed. But when they are, it's going to be much easier and cheaper for developers to add those those kinds of features. Um, and I, I feel like that could really be a, a, an enabler of a lot of this technology um, for, for at least for retail applications. I do, I know, yeah, I feel the same. And I mean, before it was, honestly, it was a novelty. You know, oh, cool, you could do it, but it wasn't where people could use it. It's going to start to grow to your point when the, you know, just when, okay, with the adoption rate of the newer, you know, phones that it's going to be there, but it's just ease of use. The friction is much more minimized now. Yep. Um, and uh, as I think we know from almost all experiences that uh, once you get that friction out, it makes a big difference in, a, in adoption. So so hopefully um, we'll see some interesting stuff there in the future. Um, but, Brian, that is going to be a great place to leave it because it's happened again. Uh, we've wasted a perfectly good hour of our listeners time. So I really want to thank you for joining us. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a long time coming, but totally worthwhile and we wish you all the best with cornerstone and look forward to following your success uh, i want to remind listeners that they're always welcome to continue the dialogue on our facebook page i know brian hangs out there all the time so if you have any questions 
we can cajole him uh, into participating as well. And, of course, if you love the show, we desperately need that five-star review on iTunes. Uh, if you hated the show, don't don't feel the need to, to write any review at all. Oh, great, guys. Thanks so much. Again, I re- really, really enjoyed it. Thanks, Brian. We really appreciate your patience on scheduling this. Uh, so we, we kind of used grit and gutter done and really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day uh, to share your digital experience with our listeners. Thanks. No, thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.